In Genesis chapter 2, after God has created man, he's created Adam, and he's placed him in paradise in the Garden of Eden, he looks at Adam and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Of course, we know that at that point he gives to man this great gift, a wife, Eve. But I don't think we should just think of Genesis chapter 2 and it not being good for man to be alone in the context of marriage. I think what we see there, right out of the gate, in the beginning of the Bible, according to God's perfect design, before sin has ever even come and infiltrated the creation, is that human beings, you and I, were built for relationships. You and I were wired, engineered, to live in relationship with one another, in friendship with one another. Not only are we built to live in friendship with one another and relationship with one another, but that speaks to the reality that we are in fact built for relationship with God himself. That God has placed in man something that no other creature on all of the earth can claim. The, the, the need, the desire for companionship and friendship and relationship to persevere through the course of our lives. Well, what all of us know is because we've, we've had some experience with relationships, don't we? And so what we know is that there is no greater potential for joy in our lives than through our relationships. And at the very same time, there is no greater potential for sorrow and pain and hardship and tears than through our relationships with people, isn't there? And not only is this true in our general friendships and in our general relationships and in our familial relationships and in our work relationships, but it's just as true within the life of the church. That relationship and friendship brings with it in the life of the church the greatest potential for joy in the church. And at the same time, relationship brings with it, friendship within the church brings with it the greatest potential for division and sorrow and hardship and difficulty within the life of the church. And so what we're going to see this morning in an extraordinary letter that Paul wrote is we're going to see Paul explaining to us the, the form uh, that Christian relationships and Christian fellowship and friendships are to have within the life of the church, within the life of the New Testament believer. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the New Testament epistle of Philemon. Now, some of you are like, I didn't even know a what, you know, like, is that something you order at IHOP? All right, so that's toward the end of the New Testament. You're going to go after the T's, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. Then you're going to have Philemon. It's going to be like one page, and then you're going to go into Hebrews, all right? So turn with me to Philemon. Philemon is really an extraordinary letter. And it's extraordinary because it may just be the most personal of the recorded letters that we have of Paul. And so we have Paul in the letter of Philemon writing to his friend on behalf of his friend. And so we're going to see a lot of opportunity here to learn about the nature of Christian friendship and Christian fellowship within the discipleship community, okay? So in the book of Philemon, if you would stand with me, or it's hard to call it a book, in the letter of Philemon, we're going to read it together. And we'll just read the whole letter uh, in its completion since it is so short. God's inerrant word says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you and sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep, you with, to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted with you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. Eugene Peterson, the Bible... Con, uh, Bible commentator and translator says this, his love of God affects our daily relationships. And perhaps there is no place in all of the Bible, certainly in all of the New Testament, in which we see this more clearly, how our love for God, our love for the gospel, our abiding in Christ affects the relationships that we have with each other, affects the friendships that we have one another. When Paul writes this letter to Philemon, he is writing this letter into a situation that is both personally painful and socially complex for Philemon. See, Philemon was an apparently wealthy man, a man of means. We can gather that because in this day was a, a day in which most people typically lived in a single room with their entire family. And so you might have one dwelling that housed multiple families within single rooms. But what do we see about Philemon? Philemon has his own house. In fact, he has a house that is large enough in which the, the local church actually comes and gathers there. The Latin, when they gather for worship and the, and the singing of the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs and the taking of the ordinances, they are gathering in Philemon's house. Not only that, but we see that Philemon must have had an estate that was large enough that it required and afford, could afford to have bond servants or slaves that would go out and accomplish the work of the estate and manage the work of the estate. 
And so we have Paul here writing to Philemon on behalf of his new convert, on behalf of his newly found friend, Onesimus. Onesimus had been a slave in Philemon's house. He apparently had been a forever thorn in the side of Philemon, though. Paul even says, he's been useless to you. Like forever, he's been useless to you. He's been of no benefit to you. He's been of no help to you. And so Paul is writing to Philemon because Onesimus has apparently robbed Philemon, stolen for Philemon, taken those things that he had stolen and fled and ran away from Philemon's estate as far as he could get. As a matter of fact, Paul here is in a Roman prison. And so if Philemon has made it all the way to Rome, Philemon and, or, uh, Onesimus and Philemon were from a place called Colossae. And Colossae was some 1,300 miles away from Rome. And so you can see how far uh, Onesimus has fled from Philemon. Now, when we come into this letter, I think the central theme of the letter is that of fellowship. The central theme of the letter, of Paul's letter to Philemon, is that of fellowship. And I say that because there's a Greek word. Now, I try not to throw a lot of Greek words at you because, frankly, I don't know very many, and I'm not very good at it, and that don't make a lot of sense to us. But I think there's some words that we should really learn in the life of the church. And the Greek word for fellowship, which is koinonia, is one of those words that we should learn. It's a frequently found word, and it's a massively important word in the life of the church. And though we don't see it translated as fellowship in the English Standard Version or probably any of the versions that you've read this morning, we know that the word fellowship is used twice, though interpreted differently in the life of the letter. So we see it once in verse, uh, verse 6. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us in Christ Jesus. So if you want to circle the word sharing in your Bible, the word sharing there is the same word as fellowshipping. When we read verse 6 together, our tendency, when we think about sharing the faith, what do we think about? We think about evangelism, right? We think about going to our, un, our unchurched co-workers or our, our, our lost family members or going to a place like Zimbabwe and sharing the faith, sharing the faith that they can hear the gospel and come to the gospel. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul's not talking about sharing the faith with those that are unchurched. Paul is talking about sharing the faith with those within the church, about fellowshipping in the faith fellowshipping together in such a way in which you are giving your faith to your brothers and sisters of the faith. Fellowshipping with one another in which you are literally taking the, the love of the gospel and the passion of the gospel and the transformative hope of the gospel and you are offering it to your brothers and sisters in friendship and fellowship day in and day out. Now look, at, look with me to verse 17. Verse 17 says, So if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you receive me. Circle the word partner there. The word partner there, again, comes from the word koinonia, meaning fellowship. So literally what Paul is saying in verse 17 is, so if you consider me, your, uh, if you consider us to have rich fellowship, fellowship with Onesimus as you would fellowship with me. Have friendship, have partnership, have, ha, take, take investment in Onesimus' life just as you would if I, Paul, were to come in and be with you. And so fellowship is at the very center of what Paul is teaching. He's teaching about the nature of true gospel, New Testament, authentic, genuine. Let me think of another adjective, faith, fellowship within the life of the church. Now, we Baptists have kind of hijacked this word fellowship, haven't we? Huh? We, we've kind of diluted this whole concept of fellowship because we have fellowship halls 
And we have fellowship ice cream. And we have fellowship time in Sunday school and fellowship time in church. And we have fellowship fried chicken. Oh, man, we have fellowship fried. You know one of the things I found out here? We can have an event. We can be serving spaghetti. It can be a spaghetti supper. And you know what shows up? A bucket of fried chicken. We can be having a wild game dinner. And do you know what shows up at the wild game dinner? Domesticated chickens. We can be having an ice cream fellowship and somehow magically imported into the midst of our cafe is fried chicken. Because every event, and this is such a Megan Hell move, every event is, well, we just know everybody loves chicken, so I'm just going to bring a bucket of chicken just to be on the safe side, right? And so we've so imported that into our understanding of, of fellowship that when I start saying fellowship, some of y'all have like this Pavlovian response and you start salivating for fried chicken right? But what Paul is teaching us is that fellowship is much deeper than that. Fellowship has nothing to do with the extra crispy at KFC. Fellowship has nothing to do with potlucks. Those things can contribute to the life of the fellowship. Those things can, can add richness to the fellowship. Those things can add stories and joy to the fellowship. But fellowship itself is far deeper than that. Far, fellowship itself is far more glorious than that. That in fact, what fellowship is, is fellowship is us sharing in the faith together. It's partnering together in the life of the gospel, in the life of the church. It's bringing whatever it is I have in my life and it's bringing it to the table and saying, church, share in it with me. The Lord has given me a home, share in it with me. The Lord has given me a truck, share in it with me. The Lord has given me plenty to eat. Do you need something to eat? Share in it with me. The Lord has given me the ability to sustain in faith through the middle of hardship. Would you share in that with me? The Lord has given me joy while you're in a season of sorrow. Let me share my joy with you. The Lord has in this day given me certainty in the cause of Christ and in the salvation that I have in Christ. Let me share that with you while you're in a season of doubt. Let us partner in the gospel together for the advancement of the king. Let us share our faith with one another that we can persevere in friendship together and in dedication to God. Let us fellowship together in richness and in truth. And everything that is our life is your life. And everything that is your life is now my life because we have been bonded together in New Testament, genuine fellowship, so much so that we are able to share our faith the very essence of who we are in Christ with one another. Fellowship isn't something that's scheduled within the church. Fellowship, brothers and sisters, is the very essence of the church itself. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul, uh, Peter says that the, we are living stones. That in other words, the way that God is going to build his church is he's going to find all of these broken sinners with all of our stories and all of our skeletons and all of our baggage and being alive, he's going to transform us into the building blocks of his kingdom. He's going to transform us so that he is building the walls of his palace in the new Jerusalem with our lives as testimonies to his grace. Well, if the kingdom is built out of living stones, it is our fellowship with one another. It is our friendship with one another that forms as the mortar that holds us together. 
It is our fellowship and our friendship with each other that binds us together in gospel partnership and in gospel work through the difficult days of the church and the celebratory, praiseworthy days of the church. It is our fellowship with each other and our willingness to partner in the gospel and to share the faith that will hold us fast as living stones in this, king, or in this world for Christ's kingdom. And so we see in, the, in, our, in Paul's letter to Philemon at least, three different, uh, at least three different examples of fellowship. At least three different examples of what these New Testament friendships, these New Testament relationships look like so that we might learn how ours are to, to look. The first relationship that I want us to look at is Paul's relationship with Philemon. Paul's relationship with Philemon. Now, what's really neat about the way Paul comes into this is he, he comes in and the ESV says that Philemon, you are my beloved fellow worker. Your translation may say that Philemon, you are my co-laborer. In other words, remember Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. He is chained to guards. He, he is not at the peak of his life. Paul is in the season of hardship. Paul is in a season in which perhaps he would be prone to doubt. A season in which he would be prone to be discouraged. A season in which he'd be prone to, to think, man, I'm not sure if this is really worth it. I'm not sure if I've got all of this right. And so he's thinking about Philemon. And how does he write it? Philemon, you are my partner. You are my co-laborer. You are my beloved fellow worker. Oh, Philemon, as I sit here in chains, I remember I do not sit here alone. As I labor in pain, I remember that I do not labor alone. Oh, Oh, Philemon, we are in this together, aren't we? Philemon, as often as I think of my hardship, I can think of you. And thinking of you brings joy into my life. It brings perseverance into my life. It brings the ability for me to carry on when I might want to throw in the towel. You are my fellow worker, my co-laborer. What we can see and learn about Paul and Philemon very quickly by listening to the words of Paul is that they had a joyful friendship. He even says it in there, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, Philemon. That this is a, a, a relationship in which one is giving joy to the other on an ongoing basis. That they have such a friendship, such a, a bond with each other, that it brings joy, equal joy, into each other's lives for the good of the gospel. So much, if, we read first, uh, if you read verse 19, I think in verse 19 what we see there is that Paul was actually the one that led Philemon to Christ. That Philemon had come to Christ under the, under the teaching and the preaching and the ministry of Paul. And it seems as though from that day forward, a friendship had been formed that had not been broken. A friendship had been formed that would enable them to continue on together, even this point where, which Paul believes that he can with confidence write a difficult letter to his friend. It seems that Philemon likely had the spiritual gift of encouragement. Read in verse 7. He says in verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In other words, what is Paul commending Philemon for there? He's saying, whenever I hear about what's happening in Colossae, whenever I hear about what's happening in your life, my brother, 
I'm always hearing reports and testimonies about how you have been a blessing to one of your brothers or your sisters. I'm always hearing the report of how when they are in a hard time, you are building them up. When they are discouraged, you are lifting them up. I'm always hearing Philemon about how you are refreshing your brothers and sisters in the gospel. In fact, if you were to go all the way through verse 17, what you would learn is that's what Paul's saying about to here. He's saying, release or obey what I'm saying in Onesimus that you might in fact refresh my own heart. In other words, it seems that Philemon had a tendency of encouraging other people. Philemon had a tendency of making other people feel, uh, feel good and, feel encur- and feeling as though they can press on, being refreshed in their joy with each other. You know what? That's what it's supposed to look like in the church. That's what it's supposed to be like in our relationships with each other. Our friendships with one another are supposed to be filled with refreshing joy. Our, our, our relationships and our friendships are supposed to be places of encouragement. There will be no greater joy in our church than our ability to fellowship with one another with refreshing joy and to bring refreshing joy into the life of our brother and into the life of our sister. Because we live in a discouraging world, don't we, church? Don't we live in a discouraging world? Man, some of you, you're, you've got family members that are, are battling uh, illnesses that you can't even see the end of. You don't know sometimes how you're going to make ends meet or how that's going to work together. Some of you have been betrayed by a husband or a wife. Or you're going home to a marriage and you smile at church, but you're at each other at home. You go to work and it's like nothing you can do is good enough and the boss is always breathing down your neck. You, no matter, it's like no matter what you're doing, you're running on a hamster wheel and you can't ever make any progress. You can't ever get to where you want to be. Well, brothers and sisters, when we come into the church, when we come into our friendships with one another, we are to leave the discouragement of the world and come into relationship and friendship and love from which we can derive joy. We are to be, in other words, a refreshing joy to our brothers and sisters, a refreshing joy in their lives. So are they going through a hard time? Are they bearing the burdens of life? I'm gonna come in. I got your back, man. I got your back. I'm gonna bear this burden with you. And as long as you bear it, I'm gonna bear it too. Because we're gonna be in this together. We are partners in the gospel. We are sharing in our faith with one another. Maybe you're in sin. You're in sin and you're thinking, you know what, this thing's hopeless for me. I'm obviously worthless to the gospel. There's nothing, as much as I wanna live for Christ, I just keep on messing up. I keep on blowing it up. I keep on failing. You know what you need? What you need is a friendship of refreshing joy. What you need is a brother or a sister to come and put your arm around you and remind you, man, there ain't nothing that Jesus can't overcome. There's nothing which his grace won't cover. There is nothing through which he won't sustain you. And so as evidence of that, I'm gonna walk through this with you. As evidence of that, I'm gonna help you be accountable. As evidence of that, I'm gonna allow you, I'm gonna walk with you that you might live in Christian victory and gospel power. I'm going to do that with you. I am going to refresh you in joy. Would that be a place y'all be excited about coming? Wouldn't that be a place you'd be excited about coming? See, fellowship isn't about eating fried chicken. Fellowship is about refreshing one another in Christ, refreshing one another in joy. Let me ask you, in this world of discouragement, do you stand out as an encourager?
do you stand out as an encourager? When, you're, when, when your brothers and sisters in the church come to you, do they leave refreshed in joy or they, they leave pessimistic and negative, beaten down? When your kids hear you talk about the faith, are they being refreshed in joy or turned away from the church? When your lost family members come together with you at Christmas and at Thanksgiving, do they come and do they see in your house a house of encouragement and a house of refreshing joy that would draw them into the gospel? There is nothing that will cause you to stand out in this discouraging world like being an encourager. And it's gonna take work. It's gonna take work. Being an encourager in a discouraging world is not easy. Because we ourselves face discouragement day in and day out, don't we? And so we must resolve in Christ to share in the faith and to refresh one another in joy. The thing that stood out to me most about this letter was the way that, that Paul broaches this difficult subject with Philemon, though. Paul, he comes and he says, you know, I could come to you with apostolic authority and I could demand this of you. I could come into your life and, 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 I, and I could write this letter in such a way that I have all of the authority of Christ and all of the authority of the church and I could say, I demand you Philemon to receive back Onesimus and to emancipate Onesimus for the glory of the gospel. I could demand that of you Philemon, but I'm not gonna do that. Rather than demanding that from you, I'm gonna appeal to you in love. I'm gonna to appeal to you as a friend. I'm gonna to appeal to you in joy. I'm gonna to appeal to you as my brother in Christ. So I could come in and I could demand it, but instead I'm gonna to appeal to you. If this kind of relationship would get turned loose in the church, it would change the world's perception of the church. Whenever we have difficulties, whenever we have disagreements, you know what we do? We like come up with this, with this speech in our own minds of confrontation and, and difficulty so that we can put our brother or our sister in their place so that we are shown to be vindicated and right and they are shown to be small and wrong. We may not do that on purpose, but too often that's how it plays out, isn't it? But what if we went like Paul to Philemon? What if we went like Paul to Philemon and said, you know what, I could come to you with the, with the authority of the Bible and say, thou shalt. But instead, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna appeal to you in love. I'm gonna appeal to you as my friend. See, difficult conversations in the church, discipleship conversations in the church, direct hard teachings in the church, they must come in the context of gospel fellowship and gospel friendship. They must come for the purpose of refreshing one another in joy. They must come as an appeal, as an encouragement to the Spirit of God and the transformation of the gospel that the person has received. Not as something to put people in their place, but instead anchored in true, abiding, encouraging friendship. There's two things that's true, right? If, that, if that's going to happen, there's two things that must be true. We see this in Paul and Philemon. On one hand, Philemon has a reputation that he's going to do the right thing, right? Paul comes to you and he says, look, I know that you're going to obey. I've seen that you will obey. I know that you love Christ. I know that you want to honor Christ. As a matter of fact, Philemon, I know that when I write to you on behalf of Onesimus, that you are in fact going to do much uh, far greater things than I'm even asking you to do. 
I know that you're gonna go above and beyond because Philemon, that's your reputation. Philemon, that's what you always do. And I started thinking, do I have that reputation with people? Do I have the kind of reputation with people that they can approach me in love and know that I'm gonna respond in a godly way? Do I have the kind of reputation with people that when we have hard teachings or we have conversations in the life of Christian fellowship, that they can know that they don't have to demand me, they don't have to wag their finger at me, they don't have to speak authoritarian, like an authoritarian to me, but instead they can speak to me in the life of Christian friendship because they can be assured that I am gonna respond in a way that honors Christ and honors the gospel. The second thing that we see is that Paul gives Philemon the benefit of the doubt. Paul gives Philemon the benefit of the doubt. Paul, he may think strongly, he may believe strongly, but he really can't know. He can't know that Philemon's gonna respond appropriately, right? And so instead, what Paul does is Paul says, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna believe in you and I'm gonna trust in you. And I'm gonna give you, my brother, the benefit of the doubt that you're gonna do what you should do, that you're gonna do what's right. Did you know that suspicion and skepticism is the opposite of grace. And there is far too much suspicion in the church. There's far too much skepticism in the church. A new young man comes to be saved and what's our first instinct? Well, he probably won't last. A new young couple joins the church. Oh, they probably won't work either. We hear something that, that is a, a rumor through all of the, the rumor mill about our brother or our sister. And I always knew it. Brothers and sisters, this is the opposite of grace. This is the opposite of grace. Grace says, I'm gonna trust in the good of my brothers and sisters and the gospel change that has come in their life. And even if they have sinned, even if they have wronged me, even if they have done that which is ungodly, I'm gonna have confidence in the Holy Spirit of God in them that they will repent and turn away. I'm gonna have confidence that as I sometimes live as a hypocrite, maybe they were having a bad day too. And so I'm gonna go to them in encouragement and in love. You see how different Christian fellowship, authentic New Testament fellowship looks than what most of us are used to seeing in the church? It's remarkably, powerfully different. The second relationship that I want us to look at is Paul's relationship with Onesimus. Paul's relationship with Onesimus. Now the fact that Paul is writing the letter in the presence of Onesimus is remarkable in and of itself. Okay, now remember, Paul is in a Roman prison. And now he's writing to Philemon saying, hey, Onesimus is hanging out here with me. Now think about what had to happen. Okay, so Paul and Philemon have a relationship. Paul is the evangelist that wins Philemon to Christ. Onesimus lives in Philemon's house. No doubt uh, he has heard Paul perhaps preach or heard certainly the, the teachings of Paul and the letters of Paul read in the church that gathers at Philemon's house. But Philemon, in all of, his, all of his thinking the whole time, is I gotta get out of here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make my break. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run and I'm gonna get as far away from this place as I can get. And so he does. He steals from, he steals from Philemon and he runs and he gets all the way to Rome, 1,300 miles away. And there ain't no Delta. There ain't no Southwest. There's no Amtrak. He's walking, y'all. And he makes it 1,300 miles. When he gets to Rome, Rome is a city of 5 million residents. 5 million people. 
If there was ever a place in the ancient world where a runaway slave could be could blend in with the crowd and be lost in the midst of the population, Rome was it. And Paul, he can't go out looking for Philemon. He can't go looking for Philemon. He's chained up in a cell. And yet, in what appears to be random, in what appears to be chance, there's a divine appointment orchestrated by God himself so that Onesimus, the runaway slave, is there right with Paul, the bound evangelist. And Paul wins him to the faith. Paul does what Paul always does. He begins to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Onesimus. And he says, Onesimus is now my son in the faith. As a father is to his son, so I am to Onesimus. And what we begin to see is the way this relationship of spiritual parenthood begins to play out in the life of Paul. It's beautiful. Paul takes ownership of Onesimus. Paul takes ownership of what's gonna happen to him. He says, when I, he tells Philemon, I'm sending you my very heart when I send him to you. In other words, the, the, the way that you treat him is gonna determine the joy that I have. Because when I send him to you, I'm sending to you that which I love so dearly, that which I'm so passionate about. So however you treat him is gonna be in proportion to my, the joy that I'm able to have because I'm sending to you my son. That's what it looks like to be a parent, isn't it? You know, I heard a parent say this one time, you're never happier than your most miserable kid. You're never happier than your most miserable kid. And you know what? There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? There's a lot of truth in that. Because you take ownership of the hardships of your children. You take ownerships of the difficulties of your children. You take ownerships of the sorrows of your children. You take ownership of the sins of your children. You take ownership of the, of the failings of your children, over the successes of your children. And when your children weep, you weep. When your children are joyful, you are joyful. When they are miserable, you are miserable because you take ownership of your children and you love your children. This is exactly what it's to look like in the church that we are all to be spiritual parents and to have spiritual parents and we are to, to invest in one another and take ownership of one another and support one another so that we weep when one another weeps and we are joyful when one another is joyful and we, we celebrate when, uh, together and we, we sob together. We do these things together because we are in this together. It's to take ownership of those that you lead to Christ, those that are behind you so that you can invest the gospel into them. See, that's exactly what we're seeing with Paul. The question that comes out to me in this text is why does Onesimus go back? Why does Onesimus go back? Onesimus has broke free. Onesimus, there is no way Philemon knows that Onesimus is 1,300 miles away in a city of 5 million people. He has broken free. Apparently he is not, at least for the long term, going to be incarcerated in Rome with Paul because he's being sent out. Paul himself is bound to a chain. It's not like he can just take him by the ear and walk him back to Colossae. Why does Onesimus go back? Onesimus goes back because he discovered what so many of us have discovered. You can't outrun your past. You can't outrun the skeletons in your closet. You can't outrun the sin that is there. 
You can't outrun. You can't get far enough that God can't find you. And so what do we see in the life of Onesimus? Repentance. Repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is not just feeling sorry for it. It's not just feeling bad about it. It's reversing course. It's doing a 180. It's going the other way. And for Onesimus, the other way was back into Philemon's house. The other way was to go back to the one to whom he had wronged, the one from whom he had robbed, and to make things right and to be reconciled with Philemon because that is what the power of the gospel can do. And no doubt he's been instructed in repentance by his spiritual father, Paul. But you see what Paul is doing here in this letter to Philemon? As he's looking at his spiritual son Onesimus, and he's saying, son, you've got to go back. You've got to go back and you've got to face your sin. You've got to go back and you've got to face Philemon. You've got to go back in repentance. But my son, you will not go back alone. I will be a part of this with you. I will walk this difficult road right beside you. I will vouch for you as those apostle, as the apostle Barnabas vouched for me. I will walk this road with you. You will not have to walk the road of repentance alone. That's what spiritual parenting is. That's what spiritual parenting is. You see, every single one of you needs to be a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. And every one of you needs a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. It is an inherent need that every single one of us that are sinners and broken need if we're gonna grow in Christ and be godly in Christ. This is what we've missed in the church through cattle call evangelism. Why is it that we've had events in which so many people have come to faith in Christ and then never been a part of the life of the church? Could it be because we let them off the hook with no spiritual parenting? And we, had no respons we took no responsibility to be the parent ourselves. And you want to know what I think? I think the greatest absence of joy in the life of the church and the greatest absence of joy in the life of the Christian is that you have not fathered or mothered another person in the faith. When I was having Gracie Kate, when we were having Gracie Kate for the first time, when I was a, a dad-to-be, man, people just give you all kinds of solicit, unsolicited advice, right? It'll just drive you crazy. Like all of you that have been first-time parents, some of you are pregnant right now and you just know what I'm talking about. And so you get to the point where you start rolling your eyes internally at everything, right? And uh, you, you, you smile, you, you take it because you know it's meant and, and kindness, but you just start have this internal eye roll. You get in the car with your wife, and you're like, again, we got it. You know, like, you're not going to sleep very much. Like, like, you know, whatever, right? Well, one of the things that people have said, that, that said to me most often is, now, now you're going to know what love is. Now you're going to know what true love is. And I thought, oh, so I don't love my wife? Feel like that's a pretty strong love. Here we are in this together, you know? And so you, you, you get kind of annoyed, right? You're, not, you, you're just gonna understand love in a way that you've never understood it before. And then you hold that baby, right? Then you hold that baby and you look down at this crying, snotting, pooping machine and you begin to picture her in her wedding dress in the delivery room. And you think, whoa, never been like this before. 
And it's a joy that is unmistakable and a joy that, that you really begin to understand why people have been saying that to you because you can't articulate what it feels like. You can't articulate what it really means. Brothers and sisters, that is the closest thing I know to tell you about spiritual parenting. I can tell you that this is gonna bring joy into your life and I can tell you that it's gonna bring passion into your worship and I can tell you it's gonna bring excitement into your Bible study. I can tell you that it's gonna allow your heart to be kindled for the things of God and the glories of God in a way that you've never tasted before. But for you, it's one dimensional. It's one thing to hear about loving the child and it's another thing to hold the baby. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, let me implore you, let me call you. Be a spiritual father. Share the faith with somebody. Take them under your wing and walk them through the Bible. Walk them through the faith. Walk them through what it means to follow Jesus. And one day, when you see them as a greater daddy and a greater husband and faithful in their church, you're going to see it and you're going to start worshiping all over again. Because there ain't nothing like being a daddy. Nothing like being a mama. And the truth is, is it's the same way in the life of the church. Who are you parenting? Who are you raising in the faith? I've never seen a, I've never seen a Christian with apathetic, boring, indifferent worship who was at the same time seeing somebody transform a brother or a sister in Christ before their very own through their own ministry. Never seen that before. The final relationship that I want us to see this morning is the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. This one is the most complicated by far. It is easily the most difficult to, uh, to, to understand and the most difficult to, to reconcile because you have here, Onesimus has rebelled against Philemon. Now it's easy for us with our Civil War heritage to import our understanding of slavery into the letter to Philemon, but we can't do that to understand, okay? The society was structured entirely different and had, and, and in fact, Onesimus would have been allowed and privileged to a much greater life in the courts of Philemon than if he would have been as a Phrygian alone in the empire of Rome. And so he, many of the slaves in Rome at that time, had a, if they had a good, a, a, good, a good master, and we have no reason to believe that Philemon is not by the testimony of Paul himself that has been preserved by the church as being inerrant, we have no reason to believe that it wasn't. If you had a good master, then very often you would be able to marry and have a family and have your own home and have high standing in the estate and even be able to, to own land yourself. That the life that, that Philemon could offer Onesimus was far greater than the life that Onesimus could achieve on his own in the world as a runaway slave. And in fact, being a runaway slave and having stolen from his master, Onesimus could be branded or he could be imprisoned even executed by the command of Philemon. And so as Paul hands this letter to Onesimus and says, go back to Colossae, son, he could very well be carrying his own death warrant. He could very well, as he goes and hands this to Philemon, be handing him the very thing that leads to his execution. And so what does Paul do? Paul calls, calls Philemon back to the gospel, doesn't he? He calls Philemon back to the gospel. And he says, he does this by giving himself as an example. He says, if, if, if Onesimus has incurred a debt, I will pay the debt. Receive not him as Onesimus, but receive him as me. 
In other words, let me be the mediator. What does this sound like, y'all? It sounds like Christ, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus said, stood before the Father and said, look, I know that he is your enemy, and I know that he has brought offense to you. I know that he has committed treason. I know that he has betrayed you, but receive them, Father, as you have received me because I have adopted them, and now they are my brothers and they are my sisters. So bring them into your kingdom, not as slaves, but as sons and as daughters into your kingdom. And so Philemon, or Paul is saying to Philemon, remember the gospel, Philemon. Remember the joy that you have found in the gospel. And remember that what the gospel does is the gospel takes enemies and turns them into friends. That the gospel takes runaway slaves and he turns them into brothers. Yes, I know. I know that this is an unlikely brother and this is an unlikely friend, but before he was useless to you and now in Christ, he has been made much more than a bondservant. He has been made a beloved brother and now he will be useful for you in your house. See, what Jesus does is he crushes obstacles and he eliminates difficulties so that we might enjoy him and rest in him forever. And brothers and sisters, if that, is not, if that is true of our relationship with Jesus, should that not be true of our relationships with one another? There are too many obstacles to our love of one another. There, is too many, there are too many obstacles to, to our friendships with one another. But brothers and sisters, the gospel has overcome all of those obstacles and obliterated them on the cross that we might be reconciled to each other and enjoy each other and be refreshed in joy with one another. Brothers and sisters, let us look to the letter of Philemon and not see each other as co-sinners, but as brothers in Christ that we can love and abide. And maybe we would be unlike friends, but in Christ Jesus, we are nonetheless true friends, my brothers and sisters. See, throughout this letter, we see the threads of providence, don't we? He says in there, he says, for this perhaps is why he, part, he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. How else do you explain it? Onesimus has run some 1,300 miles away from his master with stolen money and stolen resources. He's done everything that he can do to get as far away from Philemon and former life as he possibly can. And where does he end up? In a Roman prison, 1,300 miles from Paul, 1,300 miles from home, chained right beside the evangelist that won his very master. Does that not sound like something God would do? Does that not sound like something God would do? And brothers and sisters, the truth of the matter is is that you and I are all Onesimus. All of us are runaway slaves, rebels to the master that have been overcome by Christ and made new in Christ. So much that the son looks to the father and said, that's my beloved brother. Receive him as you would receive me. Let's pray together.